Welcome to another great message at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Wonderful to be here. And um, as Adrian said, uh, the church here has been following a series on the book of 1 Corinthians. I just uh, want to commend Adrian for his preparation, his planning of this series, and especially his timing. And Thank you for leaving me to deal with probably the most challenging passage in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In fact, his first recorded letter. So I have to interpret 1 Corinthians 11, at least the first part of it, uh, a passage that is rather controversial and has been interpreted in so many different ways. And maybe that is why I have uh, chosen probably the most controversial sermon title that I've ever used. And it's this, Putting Women in Their Place. <laughs> but ladies, you can relax. Put the stones down. Don't leave yet. I'll explain what I mean by putting women in their place later. But I want us to read from 1 Corinthians 11. If you have uh, your Bible with you, follow it uh, with me. Otherwise, uh, you can follow on the screen. But um, I, I am going to use the New King James Version. And I'm not reading verse 1. Uh, and, and incidentally, go and, and, and listen to this sermon again at home. You'll find that verse 1 actually belongs to the preceding chapter and the, and the previous reasoning that Paul uh, made. And incidentally, the, the New Testament was not divided, was not written in, in chapters and verses. Chapters were only introduced in the 1200s. And uh, about 300 plus years later, verses were uh, introduced as well. So sometimes we need to make sure that we find verses that are, are grouped together in, in one thought. So 1 Corinthians 11 verse 2, Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man, for uh, a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, and that is a key word, even in the Greek. Nevertheless, Paul is, is basically saying, listen, what I've said so far, fine. But listen, here's the complete uh, uh, statement that I want to make. Neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as women came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, not only is my sermon title exceptional, but what is also unusual for me today I'm going to give you probably the longest introduction uh, I've ever used in, in, in a sermon. In fact, this is a totally strange style for me. Um, 
it, it, it's a, an unusual sermon or rather a teaching. And let me just say this so that you can be ready beforehand. Preachers preach by the clock. Teachers teach by the calendar. So I'm going to need more time today. Are you okay with that? Okay. So um, what, what is important, let me say this again. Please go and listen to the recording of what I'm going to say today again. And then I, I want to put it this way. Go and seal the sermon. The word seal means pause and reflect. And you will have a pause button. Pause and reflect and go and think about these things because I don't have the time to deal with everything in, in, in detail. Now, the reason why I'm giving this long introduction is I want to focus on interpreting this passage. And I want to give you a crash course in Bible interpretation because I'm going to mention some basic principles of interpretation and I, I probably will remind you of some of these principles as we go along. So I'm going to give you seven basic principles of interpretation and here's the first one. Get witnesses. Get witnesses. This is this statement is an interesting and a kind of a self-fulfilling principle in the Bible. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And the statement is spoken by at least three witnesses. God said it first to Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy shares this with Israel. Jesus comes in the Gospels and he confirms it. And then Paul uh, again establishes in, in his epistles. So it's vital to realize that if you want to prove something, you need two or three witnesses. It definitely applies to interpreting the Bible. If you read a scripture, don't build a doctrine on it unless you find corroborating scriptures, witnessing scriptures, at least two or three, as he says, because when you read something in Scripture, you need to realize that words need witnesses. That's the first basic principle. The second one is this. See text in context. Somebody said this, that too many uh, 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 preachers take a text out of context and use it as a proof text. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. Now, I've already, I've already shocked you with my sermon title. Here's another shock. Don't read any Bible verse on its own. Because, as I said, the Bible was not written in chapters and verses. It's not a book full of disconnected verses. It's not a ready reference book with a collection of nuggets of truth sorted in conveniently numbered verses. Make sure that you get the full concept. Recognize the whole thought in its broader context. Don't take any statement out of its framework, out of its context. Make sure that, that you do that. Then here's another important principle. Number three, weigh doctrines. What do I mean by that? Do the word doctrine means teaching. And it is important for us to weigh a doctrine, in other words, to establish whether this is an important truth. I want to say this. All truth is equally true, but all truth is not equally important. You see, truth has no, has no degrees of comparison. You cannot say this is true, but this is truer. And this is truest. Some words don't have degrees of comparison, like dead. <laughs> you can't say he's dead, but he's deader. Well, I think maybe in a spiritual sense with, with church members, sometimes you can. But what I want to say is find out the weight, the importance of the truth. And here's another way to, to put this principle in other words. Doctrines of significance occupy positions of prominence. 
Let me say that again. Doctrines of significance occupy positions of prominence. So here's what you need to ask. Not what is important for me. What is important or weighty in God's eyes? And if God considers something to be important, don't you think he would have dedicated enough space in his written word on that specific topic? So look for something that has a position of prominence in the written word. And don't make a major doctrine out of a minor statement. Principle number four, look for light. If you are in the dark about the meaning of a scripture, look for light in scripture. Because Psalm 119 and verse 130 Incidentally, which deals with the word, the psalmist says this, the entrance of your words gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. So if you want light on something, go and read scripture. Find illuminating scriptures that will shed light on what you read as you trust the Holy Spirit. Uh, Clement of Alexandria was a church father in the, uh, in the first uh, or the second and the third century. And um, he was probably the, the first theologian who said these words, explain the scriptures by the scriptures. You cannot take any experience that you had to try and interpret scriptures. Scripture will explain scripture. So find some other scriptures that will shed light on this uh, specific topic. Number five, start with simpler stuff. What do I mean by that? Well, let me first of all quote a, a statement that has been ascribed to, to Mark Twain, American writer and uh, humorist. He said this, It is not the things which I do not understand in the Bible which trouble me but the things which I do understand. So sometimes we, we get so busy with the things that we don't understand, and we're not even doing the things that we understand. But if you find a difficult passage like this one, and um, you don't understand it, follow, then follow this principle. Clarify a complicated scripture with a less complicated one. Because as I said, scripture will explain Scripture, And so if an unclear text seems to be in conflict with a clear teaching found elsewhere in the Scriptures, then interpret the text in the light of the more complete revelation. Principle number six, mind the gap. If you've been on the underground in London, you will know what I'm talking about. When you get out of the train, they'll always say, mind the gap. Don't fall in the gap. Now, what we need to understand, when we compare the way we perceive things today in a modern Western society, and we compare that to the times of the Bible writers, we will find that there are many gulfs or gaps. So, we need to be mindful of those gaps when we interpret Scripture. Now, here's something interesting, if you can remember this. Incorrect interpretation of the Bible happens sometimes because of four things. Our interpretation is either nonsensical, non-historical, accidental, or occidental. <laughs> Let me explain those, those terms. Nonsensical means devoid of wisdom or good sense. And some people are, when they interpret the Bible, totally devoid of, of good sense. Non-historical means without a regard for history, not based on or drawn from the historic setting. They totally ignore that. Accidental means without intention, the result of careless action. Some people go about interpreting the Bible in a careless way. And then occidental means from a Western perspective, because you have Occidental and Oriental. So we need to make sure that we see things 
uh, and we recognize the cultural, historical significance of the situation, and then take note of those gaps uh, so that you can traverse those uh, rifts. Right, so mind the gap and, and, and cross the cultural, historical chasm. Lastly, number seven, grasp the tongue. Grasp the tongue. I, I'm not meaning that you should grab somebody by the tongue. But I'm trying to say that the people of the Bible spoke different tongues, different languages that we may not understand. Even if in modern times you speak Hebrew or you speak Greek, it is not the same as the ancient form of those languages. So we need to try to find out and understand more about the meanings of words in the original language in which Scripture was written. So go and, and, and meditate on these seven principles because it will help you to interpret the passage of, of 1 Corinthians 11. So let me get to that contentious Scripture, um, and, and then I'll speak about the title a little bit later. So I want to make general comments about 1 Corinthians 11. Maybe this is another uh, attitude that we should have when interpreting Scripture. Catch the Spirit. Don't get stuck with the letter of the Scripture. Um, I, I could have given you today a verse-by-verse -verse explanation of the Scripture, word for word. But, but I, I feel it, it would be too cumbersome if, if we do that. So I'm going to give you an overview uh, without dealing with the details in, in 1 Corinthians 11. So here are some general comments about 1 Corinthians 11. And I want to uh, uh, approach it from the angle of what this passage is not about. Firstly, is, it is not about human traditions. When Paul starts his, uh, his thought on this in verse 2, he says this, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. I don't want to bother you with the Greek word, but the word tradition really literally means to pass on to somebody close to you. So tradition is something that is passed on through generations. But specifically here, in the way that Paul uses it, it, it doesn't just refer to something passed on, but a specific teaching. Let me call it a divine revelation that Paul had. It was something that was delivered to him. And incidentally, go read 1 Corinthians and you'll find that a, a couple of times Paul says, it was delivered to me. From whom? From the Lord. He received revelation from God, and then he delivers it. He transmits it, and that's the tradition that he's, that he's speaking about here. So it's not about human tradition. It's about God's revelation. And if you read verse, verse 2 in um, and giving me interpretive freedom, I want to use the word deliver here. He says, I praise you that you keep what was delivered to me by God just as I delivered it to you. And it's not about human tradition. Second thing, this passage is not about religious rules, but about relationships. Go and, and, and catch the spirit of it, and you'll see that it's firstly about our relationship with God through Christ. And then it's about our relationships within the body of Christ. Next point I want to make, this passage is not about head coverings per se. That's not the main theme that Paul wants to emphasize. It really is about proper order in public services. Go and read it, and, 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 and you'll, you'll find that it's about God's proper order in His creation. This passage is not about male superiority. Come on, ladies, you missed a good opportunity to say, Amen. <laughs> You'll see that it's about male and female believers reflecting God's glory. It's about mutual interdependence between men and women. 
Now, incidentally, I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 11 too. Uh, I, I, I want you to realize that Paul is not writing to men only as the New King James Version seems to, to indicate. Because it says there, now I praise you, brethren. The first thing is the word brethren does not appear in the oldest manuscripts. Secondly, even if it did appear in the oldest Greek manuscripts, the Greek word adelphoi, the plural form of the, the word, does not just mean brothers, it could mean siblings, brothers and sisters. So often in the New Testament, when you see Paul addressing the brethren, he's speaking to everyone, brethren and sisterin. Amen. So, so it's important to see that. Two more things I want to say. This passage is not only about resolving women issues. Because he addresses and corrects the men who had wrong attitudes and wrong actions. Go and, and read it. And then lastly, and I think this is important, this passage is not to serve as a basis for arguments. Because uh, it's all about bringing harmony, uh, bringing order. And in concluding his reasoning, Paul suggests that no believer should have an argumentative, uh, argumentative attitude. In verse 16 he says, uh, if anyone is contentious, we have no such custom. Literally, we have no such mutual, mutual ethos. We don't have such a habitual practice. He says, not me and not anyone else in the other churches. So don't get contentious. Okay, now let me get to that provocative title, putting women in <laughs> their place. Uh, in general, the expression to put a woman in a place means to put the woman down, to humiliate her. I intend quite the opposite. I'm going to show you the glorious place that the New Testament gives to women. And we're going to put women in their proper place like Jesus did. What does the new covenant of Christ give to women? What position, what place. Now, in my response to this question, I'm also going to use Old Testament scriptures, but um, just a, a few things that I want to mention. Number one, actually, there are three sermons in this one sermon. That's why I say it's so unusual for me. So number one, women have a place of value in God's eyes. We need to realize that. Now, God did place proper structures of authority in society in general, in the church, and in the family, in the, in the marriage relationship. But we need to understand this. Your standing in these structures does not determine your value. There's no one more valuable in God's eyes because they have a higher standing in these structures. That is the message that comes out clearly in the Bible. Let me take the family as an authority structure, as an example. A child is in a position of dependence. A child should be in submission to his or her parents. However, that child is as valuable to God as any grown-up person. Not less valuable. In the same sense, a regular member of a church is not inferior to the pastor. They have different roles, but not different values. God doesn't answer pastor's prayers quicker than your prayers. Amen. We are created with equal value. And let me just throw this in at no extra cost. An evangelist is not worth less than an apostle. Because sometimes we, <laughs> we give these rankings to people. And people love titles to make them look superior. 
I like, love what Kenneth Hagin said about titles. He said, um, you can stick a label on an empty can and it's still empty. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, labels are usually fables. And we need to, to realize there's nobody inferior. Now, let me get to, to women. They have been created by God with equal value, equal dignity, equal status, because women were created like men in the image of God. Amen. And then in the new covenant, Jesus comes to remove improper distinctions and discrepancies that prideful people produced through time. And listen to these words from Galatians 3, 28. I want to read it from the message paraphrase. He says, In Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we all we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. What a beautiful scripture. And then let me, let me get to 1 Corinthians 11. I haven't forgotten it. In verse 11, and I'm reading from the, the Good News translation this time, he says, in our life in the Lord, that's the new covenant uh, context, he says, however, that's that word, nevertheless, in the Greek, which says, Paul says, I have said all these things, but read on. Because, on the other hand, here are my correct and my complete thoughts on this matter. He says, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man at creation, in the same way man is now born of woman. And it is God who brings everything into existence. So, if Paul wants to prove anything about superiority, he's talking about the superiority of God. He says, he's the one that is above all. Everything that exists came from God, and he's the one to whom we should submit. Let me give you a, a last scripture that will show you that all our relationships are actually defined by Christ. Ephesians 5. And this is a favorite scripture that some men quote. Verse 22 and 23. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then most of the time they leave out this part. As to the Lord. Because that's the relationship. Then he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, and they leave out this part, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. So what is the saying? It doesn't give you the license to control as a man. It doesn't tell you that you can manipulate. It says you need to be the head as Christ is in love and in self-sacrificial compassion. Amen. Amen. So some husbands use the stakes to establish their <laughs> divine dictatorship. They think that's how God appointed them. But as I said to you about the principles of interpreting the Bible, see a text in context. So let me, let me say this. When you read Ephesians 5, 22, 23 again, won't you just accidentally read the preceding verse, verse 21? Because here's what it says. Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So again, Paul is saying it's about God. He's the superior one. And there should be mutual submission, even in the marriage relationship. Say amen, say aina, say aish, say something because it's true. <laughs> Here's the next thing that I want to say about the position or the place of women. Women have a place to speak in church. Wow. Because that is um, 
that is such a controversial thing, and, and, and people use all, all kinds of scriptures. I'm, I'm going to come back to 1 Corinthians 11 because it actually says it very clearly and confirms this. But uh, I first need to deal with the scripture in the same epistle uh, where sometimes people use the scripture to prove that women should keep quiet in church. 1 Corinthians 14. And go and read this at home. Now, it's just three chapters on uh, after 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 33, Paul says, God is not the author of confusion. God doesn't want confusion in the church. That's, that's what the passage deals about, the context. But of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now, <laughs> verse 34, let your women keep silent in church, for they are not permitted to speak. For they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, if you just take it on face value according to that translation, this is shocking stuff. But I, 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 I want to take you to an even stronger sounding scripture in 1 Timothy 2, and then I'll make comments about both these passages. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first in Eve. Now, remember the principles that we spoke about? Allow Scripture to explain Scripture. So, I'm going to also start with, with scriptures that are probably simpler to explain so that we can then find the light that we're looking for uh, in, in this context. So here are some uh, important things to consider when you uh, look at, at, at these two passages. Firstly, discern whether Paul is talking about women in general or specifically about wives. Can you remember I said grasp the tongue? Understand something about the original language or try at least to. Now here's something very, well, I don't want to say unique about it because uh, uh, Afrikaans is actually the, the same. In Greek, there's only one word for man or husband, not two words. There's only one word for women and wife. So what is important, you need to, when you read a passage, find out from the context whether it's speaking about men in general or specifically in the marriage situation about a husband. And the same thing would apply to, to wife then. Now, it's very clear in 1 Corinthians 14, it's speaking of wives. Listen to verse 35. Let them, the wives, ask their own husbands at home. So it would be wrong to read women in there because it speaks about wives. First Timothy is the same. In verse 13, Paul uses Adam and Eve, the first husband and wife, the first couple, as an example. So he's talking about in the context of the marriage relationship. So that's my second point. Paul is talking about submission in the context of the marriage relationship. In the home, the husband is the head of the wife. In the church, Jesus is the head of the whole body, of all believers. And I want to be very clear about this. In the natural domestic situation, the husband is the head of the wife, but Jesus is the head of all believers. Um, I, I remember reading this in, in a book of Kenneth Hagin many years ago called The Woman Question. He said this, uh, these significant words, A man may be the head of one woman, his wife, but he's not the head of every woman. Go and read it in the Bible, and you'll find that is what it says. Now, let me read 1 Corinthians 14, 34. It says, they, the wives, are be submissive, as the law also says. What is the law referring to here? The marriage law. It's in the context of 
the marriage situation. First Timothy 2.11. Let the woman or the wife learn in silence with all submission. Where does submission apply? In the marriage situation. Right. Let me, let me continue. Here's another comment. Paul is talking about learning something, asking questions. He's not referring to ministry. Let me read in 1 Corinthians 14, 35. If they, the wives, want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. And then in 1 Timothy 2, 11, let a woman, or rather a wife, learn in silence. So what was the situation here? We had a situation where women in the tradition of that time were not as well versed, no pun intended, in scripture. <laughs> they did not uh, have the opportunities that men had to sit in the synagogue, etc., etc. Therefore, when their emancipation really came through Christ, they had a lot of questions and they were disrupting the services and actually asking questions. And Paul says, listen, God is not the author of confusion. Go and deal with us at home and ask your own husband. That's what it's about. It's not a, 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 about ministry. So, uh, here, here's the next point I want to make. Paul is not talking about absolute silence, but about quietness. And, and, and it's very interesting uh, where he says, let your women uh, keep silent in the churches, 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Um, he's, he's talking about learning or asking questions and avoiding that disorder confusion in, in the church. Now, let me come back to 1 Corinthians 11, 5. Paul says, when a woman prays or prophesies, so women can pray. Not just privately, but in a public service. Now, you can still pray privately, but you don't prophesy to yourself in the mirror. <laughs> so what is prophecy? It's a public thing. It's public ministry. Paul never said women cannot say anything in church. How do you keep silent while prophesying? So let Scripture explain Scripture. I mean, Acts 2 is a, is a very clear Scripture where the prophecy of Joel is quoted. And here's what the Lord said. He said, I am going to pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Then he says, on your men servants and your maid servants. And he says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. That's the clear message of, of the New Testament. Um, go and read about Philip the Evangelist who had daughters who prophesy. Women may speak in tongues. Go and read in, in, in the first two chapters of, of Acts that there were women in, in the upper room. Women may teach Acts 18, an, an amazing passage of Scripture, it tells us about uh, a man called Apollos who was Nohal, um, mighty in the Scriptures. And then it says he didn't know everything about the Lord's way. And who took him, took him aside to teach him? Husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila. And interesting, Priscilla is always mentioned first. <laughs> So Priscilla goes and teaches a man who knows the Scripture. She was a teacher of teachers. So let's read 1 Timothy 2.11. Let a woman or a wife learn in silence. The Greek word used here actually means quietness, not total silence, tranquility arising from within, causing no disturbance to others, being peaceable. And that speaks about stillness of spirit. Last comment. Paul is talking about wives 
usurping authority over their husbands. When he says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman or a wife to teach or to have authority over a man or a husband, he's actually saying to usurp authority, not to just have authority. Because here's a special Greek word that is used only once in the New Testament. And it actually speaks about seizing or claiming undue authority, uh, dictating to, issuing commands, lording it over. So it's not just about having authority, but it's usurping authority. And uh, uh, I'll conclude with the Williams translation. He puts it like, like this. I do not permit a married woman to practice teaching or domineering over a husband. And that's the 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 spirit of this translation. Oh my word, I only have uh, 74 more points that I need to cover. (laughs) Here's the third thing about a woman's place. A woman has a place in ministry. Firstly, my conviction when I read the Bible is that Every believer has a ministry. You might not be full-time in the ministry, but you have a ministry. So the issue is not that. It's really about can women function in the fivefold ministry? And it hinges on whether women could speak in church. Because if you cannot speak, you cannot minister. That's how simple it is. And... um, Because all of these ministry offices, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, all of them are speaking ministries or preaching ministries, if you want to put it that way. So can a woman stand in in the fivefold ministry? I'm glad you asked the question. What we read about in the Old Testament, there were definitely prophetesses under the Old Covenant. And incidentally, there were also judges, rulers, Can I call them prime ministers of Israel, like Deborah? But here are some Old Testament prophecies, prophetesses. Miriam, Deborah, as I said, she was also a ruler. Huldah, Isaiah's wife, Mrs. Isaiah. (laughs) Noadia, maybe a, a false prophetess. Anna, mentioned in the Gospels, still an Old Testament prophetess. So, If Hebrews says we now have a better covenant based on better promises, is it only better for the men? Because if women cannot prophesy or stand in the office of a prophet in the New Testament, it's not a better covenant. Come on, it's worse then. You see, so I'm I'm, going to rush. Go and study especially Romans 16. Because... Paul there mentions his co-workers in spreading the gospel. And I think there are at least nine women that were partners of his ministry. Not silent sleeping partners, speaking partners. And, and, and I cannot read their, their names, but I, I found at least... Um, uh, 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 16, 17 women uh, connected to, to Paul's ministry. So women can be in the ministry. I, I love what, what Reinhard Bonke said. He said, you know what? When you are drowning and somebody's throwing you a lifeline, you don't ask, is that a woman throwing me the lifeline? You just grab it. Amen. <laughs> And so what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 11, he's not discouraging women in ministry, but he exhorts them to do it with propriety and with dignity. Here's my actual last point, number four. Women have a place of glory. As I said, we were created in God's image. We lost it, and Jesus came to restore our glory. He said that the glory the Father gave him, he gave to us, to all of us. And we are growing from glory to glory. Now, Paul also mentions, go and read in 1 Corinthians 11, the word glory. Now, it is not the head covering that is the woman's glory. Because this whole thing 
is not a head issue, it's a heart issue. I'll, I'll never forget when, when we started realizing the truth and the liberty of, of, uh, of what the scripture really said. And uh, because we grew up with, with heads on, hats on, on, on heads. <laughs> and um, just incidentally, Cora is wearing a hat this morning. <laughs> She's very, very submissive and <laughs> scriptural. But I'll never forget the first time I went to preach in another church and, and she went out, uh, uh, the building came back with the kids and a woman was waiting for her in the foyer and she didn't have a hat on and said to her, where is your hat? <laughs> and she said, I, I don't have a hat. She said, but you need to wear a hat as a sign of respect to your husband, which the scripture never says. And she said, but my husband told me not to wear a hat. <laughs> now, we knew this woman. She would wear a hat in church and go home and sit on her husband's head. <laughs> so it's a, it's a heart matter. <laughs> so ask yourself when you read 1 Corinthians 11, does God give this issue of a head covering a position of prominence no don't make a major doctrine out of it don't split churches over hats or no hats look for other witnesses in scripture I, I, I wish I could read these scriptures but go and read them at home 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 4 he says basically let it be a hard issue don't let your adornment be merely outward he's, he's addressing the woman here he says arrange or the wives rather he says arranging the hair wearing gold or putting on fine apparel rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God that's what God is interested in. He is not so much concerned about what you wear. Amen. He looks at the heart. Now, he, don't let it be merely outward. That's what the scripture means. I know God looks at the heart, but I have to look at your face. <laughs> I will never preach against makeup. Because whatever can help you can help me. In 1 Timothy, the, the chapter we read in verse 2, he also speaks about don't, don't focus on elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works as is proper for women who affirm that they worship God. So what is that head covering in 1 Corinthians 11? And just incidentally, the two passages, 1 Peter and, and, and 1 Timothy, he speaks about hair. There's no mention of any covering, any veil. I don't want to go into the detail. It could have been the long hair of a woman that was the covering. It could have been uh, some uh, head garment or, or whatever. So here's what I want to say. Let us be aware of the cultural, historical situation. There were laws governing dress code in the Roman territories. It was not allowed for a woman of lower status to cover herself. That only belonged to the, the upper classes. And what Paul is saying here is, he, he, is he's saying, um, uh, don't, don't appear to be um, sexually promiscuous because that, that is where it belonged. That's how those people dressed. He also wanted men and women to uphold gender distinctions. That was, was important. So don't get stuck on the head covering. And the last thing I want to deal with, where he says, uh, woman needs to, to wear that because of the angels. What does that mean? I have no clue. <laughs> I'll ask Paul one day in heaven. <laughs> Some people think real angels we need because we're going to judge them and we need to be proper when we judge them. Some say because the word angel means messenger. It could have been a human messenger. Something that Paul is saying, be careful that, that people don't come and tell 
society about how bad you behave and, and, and how uh, bad your appearance is in the church. It's not important. It's a heart issue. Whatever we do must bring glory to God. Amen. And don't be contentious and quarrelsome. I hope this is in, has in some small way helped you to see that we need to, to interpret the Bible in, in a, a, a proper way. And, and we need to realize customs change. Hairstyles don't say as much now as they did in that time. It's not about your hair or your head. It's about your heart. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you for being so patient with me. I know I, I totally went over my time. But um, I think it was important just to, to get this, the spirit, to catch the spirit of the scripture. Father, we thank you as we are gathered this morning that it is about you. The focus is not on us. You are the superior one. You are the one to whom we must submit. Everything exists because of you. And in our relationships and in our public services like this morning, we want to make sure that we do not draw attention to ourselves but that we make sure the focus is on Jesus Christ and I thank you for helping us to understand that it's about our heart and in this mad world that we are living even today thank you that you bring sobriety that we can act in a proper way, in a respectable way, in a dignified way, so that we can bring glory to your name. And we ask if there's anybody here today who might not be in a relationship with you, and that's the most important relationship, that they can invite you to come into their lives so that you can reign as Lord, and that their lives would be changed and that they can follow you for the rest of their time here on earth. So we ask these things in the name of and to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.